tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hi, I'm Nev. And I'm Britt. And we're the hosts of Microbiome Matters. Before we get started, we'd like to say thanks for tuning in, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you're enjoying listening, we'd really appreciate if you could rate the Microbiome Matters podcast on your streaming app and share it with your friends and colleagues. This will really help us to reach more people. That's it from us. Back to the episode. Hi, I'm Niv. And I'm Brett. And welcome to the Microbiome Matters podcast. Today, we're joined by Christian costas Batley. Christian is a gastroenterology dietitian specializing in celiac disease and works both in the NHS and in private practice. At Bradford Teaching Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, he currently runs the dietetic-led celiac service with the support of gastroenterologists and has built this service over the last three years. He also runs celiac clinics through city dietitians in private practice. In 2021, he was a double award winner for the National Complete Nutrition Awards as Clinical Nutrition Professional of the Year, as well as the Social Media Personality of the Year. And today, he'll be talking to us about celiac disease and its effects on the gut and the gut microbiota. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So our first question today for you is, what is celiac disease and how is it different from gluten intolerance? Great, that's a really good question to start off with. So, so celiac disease is essentially a multi-system autoimmune condition, meaning that unfortunately for people who have celiac disease, when they eat gluten, the body attacks itself at the height of the small intestine, which is just after the stomach. And it causes physical damage there. And by causing that physical damage, it can cause a series of complications. Um, it can cause vitamin mineral deficiencies, certain symptoms too. And really, the, you know, the, there's no cure for this condition, unfortunately, with celiac disease. And the only treatment that we can provide for patients is to completely avoid gluten for the rest of their life. So I guess the, the difference, the main difference there is that, you know, when we look at something like gluten intolerance, well, actually, strictly speaking, gluten intolerance is not a proper scientific term. And essentially, people use gluten intolerance to say, you know, I've eaten some gluten, I've got some problems or some symptoms. But really, we always need to dig deeper than that, because there's always going to be different causes. And celiac disease is not the only condition in which gluten can be a problem for people. There's some other conditions, which um, I think we'll hopefully talk about later and we'll define and things like non celiac gluten sensitivity. So that's where we rule out something like celiac disease, we rule out something else like wheat allergies. So some people who have problems with wheat might have a wheat allergy. Uh, but there's also people who have problems with gluten, which have problems with their skin, which is something we call dermatitis herpetiformis, which is another autoimmune condition. There's also something like gluten ataxia, where it can affect the brain, and that's another autoimmune condition. So there's a really, um, there's a combination really of, of diseases that can be linked to gluten. And that's why when someone has gluten intolerance, we always need to dig deeper, get the right diagnosis, and the treatment will be different. It not always will be the same version of the gluten-free diet. And some people might need a wheat-free diet if, for example, they have a wheat allergy which is different to a gluten-free diet. So there's all these little um, intricacies and things that we need to consider to get the right treatment for, for each person. 
Well, thank you for giving us that comprehensive overview of celiac disease and other gluten-related conditions. Could you tell us a bit more about what physiological changes we observe in the gut of individuals with celiac disease? Sure. So, so essentially, as, as I mentioned before, unfortunately for people with celiac disease, when they eat gluten, um, everything goes in the wrong way when gluten arrives in the small intestine. So in the small intestine, we've got these finger-like protrusions called villi, which help us absorb some key nutrients. Um, and essentially what happens is that when somebody with celiac disease eats gluten, little by little, you know, when gluten is exposed to, you know, in the whole process, it's exposed to the body and the body starts to recognize it as a foreign agent that shouldn't be there. So really what happens is that there's an attack there on trying to destroy these gluten particles and our immune system tries to destroy these particles. And in the whole process raises loads of inflammatory markers within the gut. It's kind of like a cascade of inflammatory processes. And then these inflammatory processes start to attack the gut and cause physical damage. So this can flatten the villi. It can also cause the tight junctions within the guts that sort of protect us from things that shouldn't be there. They, they start to open up and get wider. And this is what can cause things um, which a lot of people will be familiar like uh, with like leaky gut. And really that's not beneficial for our immune system, for our health either. So it's almost like a downward spiral where if the patient continues to eat gluten, there's all these physical changes that happen within the gut that are not beneficial for many different reasons. Well, that sounds like there's so many complex physiological changes that occur in the gut as a result of celiac disease. Could you tell us a bit more about the cause, diagnosis and management, which you sort of touched on uh, for celiac disease? Yeah, sure. So, so I think the it, it's a really interesting area because, like many other autoimmune conditions, it's it's complex. It's really hard to know exactly what causes it. But we we know that there's a strong genetic component in celiac disease. Actually, we know that first degree relatives of people with celiac disease have a ten percent chance of developing celiac disease, which is why it's really important that we screen for these people when we see somebody with celiac disease. We need to talk about first degree relative screening with them so we can potentially screen uh, family members. Some of the other causes which we know are you know there's conflicting evidence in the research because as you can imagine it's quite hard to actually know right this is something that definitely causes celiac disease but a lot of these things do make sense and it's things that can change um, our microbiome too and can change the the you know the balance between good and bad, bad, bad bacteria in our gut so you know things like stress can potentially cause it some really stressful events that can dysregulate um, our, our bacteria our gut bacteria we know that things like exposure to antibiotics can um, dysregulate the gut bacteria too there's also um, some research around infant feeding practices whether that is things like breastfeeding could potentially be protective or potentially um, early weaning with gluten where, you know, feeding gluten earlier than it should happen could potentially raise um, the chances of somebody developing celiac disease. And then we've got a lot around post-infective gastroenteritis or certain viruses, digestive viruses, and then these these sorts of things can potentially then uh, precipitate celiac disease. So there's a there's a lot there where, you know, it kind of makes sense. These changes within the gut can, can then contribute to celiac disease. But I think we don't have anything clear cut to say this definitely as it, it's all like it, this is very kind of multi-component. So I think over the over time with research, we'll know a bit more about that in terms of the causes. And then in terms of you asking me in terms of the diagnosis. So 
I guess with the diagnosis, what we're essentially trying to do is identify what is characteristic of celiac disease. And this is where it comes back to this whole cascade of changes that happens within the gut. And part of the changes within the gut that happen when somebody has celiac disease is that antibodies are released. And one of them is called immunoglobulin A, tissue transglutaminase. And this is one of the main um, kind of starting screening points that we have with celiac disease, where essentially that gets raised within the small intestine and then it goes into the bloodstream. And what what we're trying to do when we're trying to screen for celiac disease is initially do a blood test and see if they have this raised TTG or tissue transglutaminase. Now, that's always a really good starting point. And if that is elevated, then the next thing that we need to do is check to see if there's some physical gut damage. And historically, what's been needed for celiac disease has been two things, which has been this tissue transglutaminase and then what we call a judino biopsy, which is where someone, you know, with a camera puts an endoscopy camera down the throat and and then they take a sample of the small intestine and if we can see these features of gut damage which are these damaged villi then we can correlate that with an elevated tissue transglutaminase for example and we know right there's gut damage but it's specific to celiac disease because there's a specific celiac disease antibody but what happened last year in june 2022 was that the british society of gastroenterology released some new guidance suggesting that adults under the age of 55 who don't have any sort of alarm symptoms where we might think that they've got something else on top of celiac disease like blood in the stools problems swallowing you know unexplained weight loss these sorts of things then if they're below the age of 55 have symptoms that you know kind of link in with celiac disease and they have this tissue transglutaminase blood test that's elevated but elevated 10 times above the upper limit so it's really highly elevated, then they can have another blood test, which is what we call an EMA or an endomysial antibody, which is again, another antibody that happens as a, re- as a consequence of this reaction to gluten in people with celiac disease, which can either be positive or negative. So if that antibody is positive and we've got a really high TTG or tissue transglutaminase. Then for people under the age of 55, we don't need a biopsy because we know that these tests are pretty much 98, even potentially 99% specific and sensitive for celiac disease. So they're extremely accurate when they're showing the right values when they're elevated enough so that's a good positive thing i think for celiac disease because we've known this for a long time we you know for years we've been doing this in children where we don't biopsy them if if the blood is showing certain levels and it means that people don't need to be eating gluten twice to get a diagnosis which is a big challenge for people because they need to eat gluten for six weeks and that's a key thing in the diagnosis If, if people aren't eating gluten for six weeks it should be gluten you know in at least one meal ideally something like a couple of slices of bread a good amount of gluten in the diet if they're not eating these amounts of gluten, then we don't have reliable tests. Um, and, and that's why it's a, a big challenge. But for those people who are, for example, above the age of 55, then what they'll need is they'll need these blood tests, but they will also need a biopsy, which is what we did previously. And then once the biopsy is done, then hopefully the, the gut damage there linked with the with the raised blood test will confirm the diagnosis there. And um, and I guess then in terms of the management, sorry, that's a very long answer to, to a short question. <laughs> Um, in terms of the, the management, then really, as I mentioned before, it is a strict gluten-free diet for life. And this is where it's really important that these patients diagnosed with celiac disease get referred to a dietitian because this, you know, it's it's not an easy diet. And really what happens is that most people oversimplify things. It's not something that you can just look on Google and find out. There's a lot of intricacies with it. And usually when we're talking about gluten, we're talking about four key, um, four key grains, and that is barley, 
rye, oats, and wheat. So barley, rye, and, and wheat will have gluten in them too. So it's not just wheat. And then oats tend to be contaminated with gluten. So that's why we would always say that people with celiac disease need gluten-free oats. But they also have a protein that's called avenin that is similar to gluten. Its components, its amino acid profile is similar to, to gluten or to gliadins, in, which are found in gluten. So essentially with these, some patients can react to it. And this is why it needs an individualized approach with all of these things. And going forward, patients need follow up to make sure they're they're getting better well that's so interesting i feel like i've learned so much already from your answers thanks i actually don't think we covered it in a question so yeah if you'd like to tell us about the symptoms of celiac disease that would be really helpful for our listeners so uh, so the symptoms of, of celiac disease are, are many, actually, and this is why patients with celiac disease present in so many different ways, and this is why it's so challenging to diagnose celiac disease, because although it's a digestive condition, uh, many people might not have digestive symptoms, and people can have digestive and non-digestive symptoms. So some of the common digestive symptoms might be things like abdominal pain, diarrhea, bloating, nausea, uh, but some people can actually have constipation too. And then other people can present with unexplained weight loss. Some people can get peripheral neuropathy where they lose sensation of their fingers and toes. People can have brain fog, problems with their memory, headaches too. And that's why really it can present in so many different ways. It can affect the brain or neurological pathways too. Some people can have mouth ulcers, um, problems with uh, dental enamel defects too. Some people can, can also present, a lot of people will present with iron deficiency anemia. We know about a quarter uh, of people with celiac disease present with this. Other vitamin and, and mineral deficiencies like folate or B12 deficiency too. Some people can have skin rashes too um, called dermatitis herpetiformis. So, so again, it, it presents in so many different ways. And really, this is why it makes it so challenging to get people with celiac disease diagnosed. And we need to be aware that actually there's, as years go by, we realize that there's more and more patients that present with these symptoms outside of the digestive tract. And some patients might not have uh, very clear symptoms of celiac disease, and they might not be very severe. And there might be something like just unexplained fatigue. So it's really important that we test these patients and that we screen for celiac disease. Well, that's really um, helpful to hear about all of those symptoms, because I think when you mentioned about the 75%, is it, of people aren't diagnosed? That, yeah, that just shows how how it would slip under the radar or people could think that it's related to something else. Definitely. Yeah, I had no idea that some of these symptoms were associated with celiac disease. No, no, it's, yeah, it's really, sounds like an area that it's a really good thing to be raising awareness about because people just wouldn't necessarily know that these are related. Absolutely. Well, there are some tests out there, such as hair tests, IgG tests and breath testing that are becoming increasingly common and uh, they're often promoted by commercial entities. We're wondering, are these tests valid in testing for celiac disease? Yeah, really good question. So definitely not, 1000%. So essentially, we see a lot of people can spend a lot of money on these tests. And they're even, even if we took celiac disease out of the equation, a lot of the, these tests have got no scientific backing. A lot of them will be IgG tests, which don't truly tell you a tolerance uh, for, for, a, for a certain food. So really, and this is what happens with celiac disease. Unfortunately, with celiac disease, we've got 75% of people with celiac disease remain undiagnosed. 
So three quarters of people have celiac disease but don't know it. And one of the challenges is because they might be doing some of these tests that tells them, oh, you know, yeah, avoid gluten amongst like 15 other things. And then they just stop eating gluten, might feel a bit better, but they don't get a proper diagnosis. So that's why it's really important that anybody who has suspected gluten intolerance, suspected problems with gluten, anything like that, they come forward, get screened, don't take gluten out of their diet. So we can do the right tests, which are the ones I was talking about with a proper raised antibody test for celiac disease and endoscopy, all these things that give us a right diagnosis. And then that patient goes on the right treatment, gets the right follow-up, gets the right blood tests. Um, some people actually need bone scans too with celiac disease because they've got an increased risk of having weaker bones. So, so there's all of these things that really, if you don't get the right diagnosis, you're not going to get the right management either. Well, that's, that's really good to know. And I think that's helpful for our listeners as well as us um, yeah. to hear about. Um, do we observe, you briefly mentioned it when you were talking about the um, cause of celiac disease and about the gut microbiota, but are there any changes observed in individuals with celiac disease as a re- result of inflammation of the bowel or dietary changes to the microbiota? Yeah, so that's a really interesting area, and it's one with celiac disease where we know when when the microbiota has been examined, we know that there are less of these anti-inflammatory associated um, gut bacteria. So there's less um, lactobacillus, for example. Um, We we've got uh, less uh, bifidobacteria too, and there's these changes which we know happen in people with celiac disease. But again, we don't know the timing exactly of what precedes it, but it definitely makes sense with all these changes in the gut that there is um, there's definitely a level of dysbiosis there where we don't have uh, as many good bacteria floating around and these this change the change with the villi where there's there's just physical destruction and damage there really so that really does not help with the with the tight junctions that we should have within the small intestine to protect us from a lot of these pathogens so it can mean that we've got more pathogens coming in and that that dysbiosis gets worse so so definitely there's some significant changes within the microbiota but i think that the challenge there is how is is it enough to to change our microbiota well probably not because there's all these like the cascade of autoimmune changes and um hopefully we'll get we'll get more information there and, and we'll, that will link to things like future treatments that's really interesting how the gut microbiota can be involved you've talked about the dietary management of celiac disease as well um, and we'd like to know is it fairly easy to shift to a gluten-free diet you mentioned some of the challenges involved but do patients generally experience difficulties when they're shifting to that gluten-free diet yeah really good question and i think this is one that is often oversimplified um by people and and really the the whole thing is that that, you know, when, when we're talking to patients about, right, this is the level of restriction you need. We know from research that if you were to get a slice of bread, right, you chop this slice of bread into 100 slices. One of those 100 slices is enough to cause gut damage for someone with celiac disease in a day. So really, when we're talking about avoiding gluten for people with celiac disease, we're trying to avoid much less than that. It's pretty much less than a crumb that we're trying to avoid. So if you try to imagine avoiding less than a crumb of gluten for the rest of your life, essentially, this means that you need to avoid any ingredients with gluten. So barley, rye, oats, wheat, or oats that are not gluten-free right but then we need to avoid things that are cooked with gluten so you need to be checking things like oil for example we can't be using the same pan this happens when you go up to eat out can't use the same toaster really should be using a toaster bag to protect it separate toaster and and it's a really big challenge so imagine imagine you've got a big household of people who eat gluten there's 
what we call cross-contamination risk, where, you know, gluten can come in contact with your food. So really avoiding that cross-contamination, if you imagine that at home on a day-to-day basis, trying to avoid it in restaurants when you eat out, which is a big nightmare for many people. Many restaurants aren't aware of what celiac disease is. They'll have a gluten-free menu, but they won't take into account cross-contamination because gluten-free is, is a fad that, you know, in many cases too, where people don't have celiac disease and follow it. So there's, there's all these misconceptions about it too. So it's that. And then the food labels, you need to be checking your food labels. You need to check this cross-contamination. So you need to be reading everything. So this is sort of state of hypervigilance where you're trying to avoid gluten on a daily basis, which is really difficult. And we've even got research, which was done back in 2014, where they asked patients with different medical conditions to rate the burden of their disease. And interestingly enough, we had many different conditions like heart disease, long-term conditions like diabetes, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, and, you know, reflux disease, a lot of these different ones. And celiac disease was rated second highest out of all of them. The highest one being end-stage renal disease that requires dialysis for you to be connected to to machine three times a day. And and second to that was celiac disease higher than all the other conditions. And I think one of the reasons is because, you know, the psychological burden of following a gluten-free diet for life is really difficult for people with celiac disease. So I think we can't underestimate that and these people need support. And that's why, you know, support with a dietitian is really important for these people so we can make the diet less restrictive, give them tools to help understand how to navigate food labels, because if not, it becomes even more challenging if they don't know how to avoid gluten properly. That's a great point you've made, how issues like cross-contamination can make following a gluten-free diet a bit more challenging for individuals with celiac disease. But the good news is that now we have a lot more gluten-free products in the market, Mm -hmm. and these have obviously played an important role in both raising awareness of celiac disease, but also supporting the management of this condition. However, we know that some of these products are often highly processed, Mm -hmm. and we know that with processing, some of the beneficial nutrients like fiber and polyphenols are also removed. Moreover, these products often contain additives to maintain the functional properties but it could potentially also impact the gut microbiota. Um, How do you guide patients in managing these sort of challenges? Yeah, another really good question. So so essentially, I think a lot of people once diagnosed, they just think, right, I need to go to the gluten-free section. That's all I need to do. And that's that's healthy for me. But really what we need to share with patients is that actually for most people, you know, you should be getting most of the foods outside of that gluten-free section. They should be naturally gluten-free foods. So we're talking about things like fruits, vegetables, beans, lentils, all these sorts of pulses. Um, if you if you have an animal-based foods in your diet, definitely a good variety of these. Eggs are really nutrient-dense too. So, you know, nuts and seeds, all these sorts of things, because actually these are going to be packed with some of the key nutrients that people with celiac disease need to have in their diet because they're more at risk of having less of. So things like iron, calcium, fiber too, which plummets a lot. We know that a lot of these gluten-free foods that we find in the gluten-free section will have less fiber and less protein in them than their counterparts. So really it's about having most of your diets being based on naturally gluten-free foods with a really good variety um, of different plant-based sources too, because that we know that increase microbial diversity. And also, you know, every, all of these foods that have fiber that are diverse, they'll also have loads of these key nutrients, which I'm talking about. So really the conversation with most patients is base your diet mainly on that. And then 
if you're going to have some of these foods from the gluten-free section, then that's fine. That's not a problem, but don't base your full diet on that. And if you're going to have these foods, aim for ones that are going to be higher in fiber that have got a mix of beneficial fibers in them too. And I think that's the most, the best thing we can do for people's uh, microbiome, for the general health too, and also for their pockets, because that's going to save money. We know that, you know, gluten-free counterparts, gluten-free foods can be between 150 and 200% more expensive than their non-gluten-free counterparts. So really we're encourage people to shop outside the gluten-free section it's a win-win for for everybody that's really a really um good response with practical applications there um for other healthcare professionals working with people with celiac disease could you tell us what the current evidence around gluten-free diets for non-celiac gluten intolerance or wheat intolerance is and does it affect the gut differently yeah, um, again, another another really good question. So there's, as I mentioned, there's a lot of these um, gluten-related disorders um, out there, and that's why it's really important to differentiate them because they'll have different treatments. So, for example, it, you know, we're talking celiac disease, we're talking about gluten, we're talking about avoidance for life, avoiding cross-contamination. If we're talking uh, about something like a wheat intolerance, well, what happens in wheat intolerance is usually people have an intolerance to fructans in wheat, right? And these fructans are simple sugars that get poorly absorbed in the small intestine and and then cause a bit of havoc in the large intestine with um, where they bring more air, water, more fermentation, and these can cause certain digestive symptoms. So for these people, really, what happens is that they basically don't break this down, they don't tolerate it as well, but there's no physical gut damage like there's with celiac disease. So that would be to tolerance. You know, if you want to have it here and there, that's fine. You know, there's, there might be some symptoms. With things like, for example, a wheat allergy, again, we're trying to avoid just wheat. We're not trying to avoid things like barley or, or rye or oats. And then that people have different tolerance levels, but they might tolerate even less than people with celiac disease. And they might need to be really cautious because they can have symptoms that can be life-threatening, right? Which, which can affect their breathing, for example. So again, that's different and it's a different management. And then we've got non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is probably the right term um, compared to something like gluten tolerance, which we've got non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity, because really we're, what we're saying is that wheat is complex and we can't just blame it all on gluten. Gluten is one component of wheat. But as I said, some people can have problems with these fructans, which is um, another component, which is actually a carbohydrate and gluten is a protein, right? But then there's some other components, um, which are, so one of the more common ones that people might have heard of are amylase trypsin inhibitors. So again, that's another component in gluten that is what we think could potentially also be linked in conditions like non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity. So there might be some other components there um, that are actually causing problems and it's not just gluten. Sometimes it will be the gluten protein. And what we need to do is we want, we need to make sure that that person doesn't have celiac disease and doesn't have a wheat allergy. So we exclude those two, then we're more likely to be looking at something like this, where it's a non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity and there's no physical gut damage in that either. So most patients with this condition can eat gluten to, to tolerance because we know there's no physical gut damage and that there's no really there's no real health risk because there's no damage there. Um, that's really interesting to hear that there's so many of these conditions that are linked to gluten or fructans, as you said, mm -hmm. but they impact the gut differently and have to be managed differently as well. Definitely. We were wondering if there are any emerging treatment or preventative strategies for celiac disease and if perhaps any of these target gut microbiota in particular. Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting area. It's been so a lot of these treatments, these these sort of future treatments have been studied for many years. And I think the really the complicated thing here is that you've got an autoimmune condition 
we don't exactly understand the cause. There's many, there's a cascade of changes in the gut. So it's kind of which causes what, how do we stop certain things? And really a lot of the trials that have, um, that are in process are in phase two of uh, medical trials. And we've, there's actually one that is in phase three, but even before they go into fight phase four, which is the f- final phase, that still takes years of, of the trial to make sure it's safe and effective for, for people before we can say, we can roll it out and say, this is a, an approved medication for celiac disease. And what a lot of these trials do, they'll, they'll have different mechanisms. So one of them is is basically a gluten enzyme that the idea is that it kind of degrades gluten so much that it doesn't become a problem. And that would be something that you could probably take with uh, a meal with gluten, for example, and it would mean that you wouldn't get any gut damage. So that's that's in phase two. Then we've got another one, which is which kind of stops the autoimmune response. It's almost like a, a drug treatment, uh, like a tablet that you could take, and it might stop a lot of these antibodies from raising. It might stop some of the process. And that again, that's that's also um, in in phase two. And then there's another one, which is um, a vaccine, where you know essentially the idea is that you could have a vaccine, and you might need some certain doses of the vaccine and it might stop this autoimmune response. So I guess some of these will have the, the microbiome involved in, in a certain way because it might stop. So one of them in phase three stops this or kind of tightens those uh, those junctions within the gut and makes them a bit tighter. So um, so a lot of that will have uh, components of the microbiome involved, but I think a lot of them are not specifically looking at, um, at the microbiome because there's this kind of complex chain of events. But I think really, you know, with all of these things, what I, I think it's unlikely that we'll get a treatment that substitutes the gluten-free diets quickly because, you know, a lot of these treatments, they'll come with side effects too, probably because we're, we're you know, we're kind of stopping this autoimmune response. We know that with other autoimmune conditions and probably will allow with some things like these gluten enzymes too, if, the, if that comes, if that, and that comes out, that'll probably be um, to allow people to maybe eat smaller amounts of gluten, maybe not worry about cross-contamination, which will still be a huge benefit for patients. But I think it's it's unlikely that we see something that substitutes the, the gluten-free diet anytime soon, because that would be very complicated to, to do in a short period of time. Yeah, it sounds like there are some exciting research going around emerging treatment strategies for celiac disease. But as you mentioned, following a gluten-free diet seems to be the best option we have now. Unfortunately for, for many people, yes. But thank you for talking to us today about celiac disease and its management. Uh, But before we go, there's one final question we ask to all of the guest speakers on our podcast. Um, What's one thing that you do to look after your gut? Oh, good, good question. So I think, you know, being being involved with with all of these things with with the gut, it really exposes you to think about things. And what I constantly try to do is find a new way of diversifying my diet, you know, with things that I've never tried to experiment to because of all that microbial diversity. So I'm always open to trying new foods, even if I think the taste isn't going to be great, but trying a lot of these new foods and being open and, uh, you know, watching on social media, all these things, people who have got these inventive recipes with things you never thought. It's, I think it's so important to not get stuck in your routine and diversify your diet as much as possible. And I think really that's really relevant for people with celiac disease where they'll stick to rice, for example, but there's all these different grains they can try like sorghum, millet, teff, amaranth, buckwheat, all these things. So it's really, for me, that's the main thing, really trying to always diversify your diet. There's always more you can do to diversify it. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. For more information and to sign up for future episodes of our Microbiome Matters podcast, go to yakult.co.uk forward slash HCP. Mm-hmm.